Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I don't know if you heard my promo for today's show, but I snuck in there that we would have a very special guest coming on to Guy Talk today, or Guys Who Talk. You know how the how that works. You know the drill. All you do is send your questions over, and we'll do our very best to answer them. The number to text is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Two four eight four. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and our very special guest, Dr. Layton Flowers. Gentlemen, welcome. Always good to be here, Bill. Yeah. So, Hi, Bill. Uh, hey, Jeff. Hey, brother. And, good and, to be here. And there's Layton, the new guy. Uh, although Layton's been on my show many times in the afternoon, I just invited him to Guy Talk, and he said yes. So what a delight. We look forward to it. Yeah. So let's jump into uh, a question to get things started. I love this question. Why don't most Christians evangelize? Leighton, I'll let you go first. Well, you know, I, I work as a director of evangelism, and we've done some study on this, and I know there's been independent studies as well. And the number one answer that people give in different ways, of course, people answer it in different ways, but in essence, the number one answer is that people are are fearful of what they may be asked. Um they're fearful of uh, the kind of questions that may be fired back at them, especially in today's culture where there are so many different world religions being represented. You know, back in the day, uh, most people believed the Bible. Uh, most people believed at least it was a good book that you should believe, and it was pretty easy to, to enter into conversations about Christ. But now we're uh, in a culture that is much smaller in the sense that with the Internet, we have so many different views put in front of us. And so it can lead to some distraction and some confusion, and people are just fearful of the kinds of questions they would be asked. And one of the things that we train when we do training for evangelism is as three words that will help you overcome that fear. And we give people permission to use these three words anytime you need to. And those three words are, I don't know. <laughs> it is perfectly, perfectly fine to tell somebody you don't know the answer to something. So if they ask about some, you know, eschatological issue or some issue about some other world religion that you're not familiar with or some philosophical quandary that you just can't fathom, uh, it is perfectly fine for you to say, I don't know the answer to that question. And and what, what, what that gives you is a new opportunity to have further conversation with that person. So let's say you engage with a, a gospel conversation. You you engage someone and they ask you a difficult question you don't know how to answer, or they make an argument against Christianity that you don't know how to respond to. Uh, it, it's fine to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, I know somebody who does. Or let me let me find the answer to that and let's meet again for coffee tomorrow or next week, let's have dinner together or something of that nature. That way you're extending the conversation, extending the relationship and and giving yourself an opportunity to learn and to help them to learn more about who you are, what you believe, and it, it, it helps to continue that discussion. And there's so many great resources 
online. Uh, I, I, I can uh, point you to s several websites where uh, truelife.org comes to mind, for example, where it gives all kinds of apologetic answers to questions that are raised out there uh, towards Christians from a Christian worldview. It has former Muslims who give reasons why they left uh, Islam. It gives questions about Mormonism and, and from former Mormons uh, and, and just about any uh, question you could possibly think of there at that website. And there are many websites like that, by the way, for Christians and resources for Christians that you can look up the answer to those things and uh, and then be able to, to to meet back again with that person who had those questions and continue the conversation. So so don't let fear keep you from engaging in spiritual conversations. In fact, you you almost want to you almost want them to ask a question you don't know. That way you have a good excuse to continue in the conversation and to to re-engage with them about you know the the questions they may have. Boy, Leighton, you keep up that quality of answer and you'll get invited back. Well, you don't need <laughs> Jeff and I at all. <laughs> uh, Leighton, well, I, will say, you know. I will say this. Your answer is spot on. And I have been, uh, I've led a lot of people to the Lord Jesus, discipled them. I've trained a lot of people. And what you're talking about is exactly right. And what I found, it was about 25 years ago. Uh, I ran into two things that changed my whole approach. One was a simple technique called active listening. And I trained people how to talk to people uh, without putting other people directly on the spot and letting the people begin to tell you their needs. And it's been amazing mm -hmm. all the testimonies I've received from people who do this. And even in Walmart at the checkout line, they wind up talking to people about Jesus within a few short minutes because the people have this spiritual need. They just are looking for somebody to listen to their life. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is that we've made a mistake in Christianity. We have institutionalized Jesus. And so people mm -hmm. come to church and we have all the rituals, we have all the traditions, but most Christians, and I'm not questioning their salvation, but I don't think most Christians have a driving passion for Jesus beyond the first couple of weeks after they come to him for the first time. And as a result, when you don't have that passion, why would you want to engage and why would you want to have a problem or why would you want to be asked something you don't really want to talk about? It's when you have the passion that you keep finding ways to engage and to get people to talk. I, I agree. I think that is most likely the number one reason people feel unprepared. They're afraid of the questions they're going to get. You know, like Leighton said, there's lots of tools out there, the four spiritual laws, the bridge diagram, Romans Road. Uh, there's lots of training available and so on. But let me give two other uh, reasons I think is, is out there. One is that I think some Christians don't feel worthy enough. I think they see what God calls us to in terms of how we are to live our lives, this call to live holy as he is holy. They understand and they realize is they're not living up to that standard. And in some way, they just don't feel worthy enough to, to proclaim something that they see themselves as not living up to. And they forget that God has said that he has made them ministers of the gospel. They yes. have been given a ministry of reconciliation by God, and they have been qualified because of their, they are a new creation to proclaim this. And uh, so I think that's a, another reason why Christians don't. And I'll just add one more, and I think this is probably my biggest reason, actually, and it's just laziness. I mean, I get onto an airplane, and I know I should start a conversation up with this guy, but you know what? I'm tired. I I just want to put my headphones on and watch a movie and, and zone out for a little while. So we sit on our blessed assurance, if you will, as one pastor once described it, 
And uh, it's too bad because in Acts, I think we have a great model in the disciples who were being punished for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And they, they were told not to speak in that name anymore. And they replied, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. For every Christian, it should flow out of us. We shouldn't be able to help speaking about this one Mm -hmm. who has saved us and given us eternal life. You know, Jeff, I also think about the the fact that, you know, mentioning not being worthy uh, kind of goes right along with the the answer, I don't know. Um, it, it it shows the person you're talking to a level of humility that, that a lot of people appreciate when you're just willing to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question or, you know, I, I don't I, I'm not the best Christian. You know, I mess up sometimes here. Here's how I mess up, um, because it shows people you're real. Uh, it shows Christianity for what it really is. If if people know their scriptures, they they know that it doesn't hide the failings of the the saints of old. It talks about David and his sin with Bathsheba. It talks about Peter denying Christ three times. It it talks about the weakness, the weaknesses of of the best of the best uh, in in the Christian faith, because Christianity isn't about being perfect. It's about being forgiven. And so sometimes just admitting that you're fearful or that you have uh, a, a feeling of unworthiness to even talk about Christ, um, that kind of helps drop the guard a little bit, drop the you know help to build bridges and drops drops the walls. Uh, instead of kind of approaching them like a know-it-all that has it all figured out, uh, that you, that you're living the perfect life or something like that, and that Christianity seems unattainable to folks that that uh, that come across that kind of a Christian. So. I think you're exactly right. Just just kind of coming right out and admitting uh, where, where your your failings are and being vulnerable with somebody really can go a long way in starting those kind of conversations. I saw it really quick. I saw that bumper sticker once. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Mm. Yeah, very, very true. All right. Well, we're going to take our first break. Let me know what questions you have. There's some great questions coming in. I uh, already had a nice comment for Leighton. Uh, Leighton's answer was amazing. I vote to have him back. But there you go, Leighton. There's your your early uh thanks mom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll come right back i got a big question to ask our power panel today is pastor tom paris jeff Verdorn, and dr layton flowers we'll be right back oh life can be filled with distractions i saw a survey that said The average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus Himself. You can sign up for this free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, where we try to buy in bulk and pass the savings on to you. 
Power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Redorn, and special guest, Dr. Leighton Flowers. And we're always happy to have your questions come in. The next one that came in uh, is this one. Is there time to discuss atonement? <laughs> Jeff Redorn, I'll let you go first. Well, this is, uh, yes, there's always time. Um, I actually have had uh, a couple email debates with a couple folks that I know, acquaintances, about what does this atonement mean? Is it substitutionary or not? And actually in some circles, especially academic circles, there's some kind of a new attack on what this atonement actually means. It's uh, kind of called under the umbrella New Perspectives on Paul, and I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, Uh, but a little story. I came home and was crafting an email response to one of these uh, challenges to this idea of substitutionary atonement, which is basically that Christ died for our sins in our stead. And a friend of mine happened to be over, and I said, Kathy, what did Christ die for? Now, she's not a theologian, uh, doesn't study her Bible all that much, but her answer was profound, and she said one word, me. And in the end, that was that is what atonement means, that Christ was was made a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and therefore is able to wash us clean and give us his righteousness. Some theologians call that the great exchange. We give Christ our sins and we in in return receive his righteousness. Sounds like a good deal to me. And I think the <laughs> best the, deal ever offered. It is. And I think the problem is most of us, even after we come to the Lord Jesus, have a hard time getting rid of the I in our life. And we keep wanting to talk about what I've got to do, what I've got to do in order to be a better Christian, what how I can get rid of my, you know, habits or sins. Well, yeah, we want to be like Jesus. That's the goal. We want to honor him. But the work of atonement was literally done on the cross. And when any person surrenders to Jesus, that cross covers them. They're covered in his blood. And it's a hard thing for people to comprehend because I think the devil works overtime at convincing people you aren't good enough. And I came to the conclusion a long time ago, I'm not good enough, and I never will be. And it's not about me. It's about what Jesus has done, and I'm going to cling to him alone and let him you know, take care of me for eternity. Leighton? Yeah, on the you know I'm a theologian by trade, and and so as soon as I hear you know the word atonement, I think about all the theories of atonement that were taught in our theology classes. The you know penal substitutionary theory of atonement, the satisfaction theory, uh, Christus Victor, uh, and I think there's like the ransom theory. There's like seven different uh, theories of atonement, and and in my estimation, all of the theories. Uh, speak to aspects of the atonement that the Bible talks to. And so I, I think theologians make a mistake sometimes if they if they choose one of the theories and say, you know, this is the the view I hold to, when in, in reality, um, depending on who the author is in the scriptures and, and the context that he's speaking on, there are aspects of truth in, in all these different theories, different emphasis of what uh, God is accomplishing through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, uh, who made atonement for our our sin, the, uh, propitiation is the big, you know, the big word for this, uh, where he paid for us. He stood in our place. 
Um, and, and what better demonstration of love than to take on someone else's punishment for them, uh, to stand in their place. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. He demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he took on wrath in our stead. And that is a perfect demonstration of the love of God for us. You know, Leighton, you, you think about how complex it is. We actually have so many different pictures of what Christ did on the cross, this kind of spiritual transaction that, that took place. And it, it paints actually a very complex picture. You you have the Passover lamb, which was a picture of the future Christ. You have the, uh, on the day of atonement, you'd make a sacrifice and that the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Well, that's a picture. You have the scapegoat and that is a picture. You have the death angel that passes over. Well, Christ took on death and conquered death once and for all for us. I mean, there's there's many facets to this picture. So I think you're right to try to sum it up. It says that he's redeemed us. He's he's bought us. He's paid for us. He's paid the debt. I mean, there's all these different pictures in scripture that 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 point to this atoning work of Christ on the cross. But in the end, I think my friend had it right that he died for me. Mm. Yeah, I have a background. And there, in, go ahead, Leighton. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in, in my discussions with you before, Bill, we've talked about the influence of Calvinism, and it it d- does get into this discussion on atonement, especially the L mm-hmm. of the apopater acrostic tulip gets into uh, what what is sometimes called limited atonement. And what I, I think the mistake our Calvinist friends are making is is saying that Christ only died for the sins of the elect, um, and they'll quote passages. You know that say something like he laid down his life for the church, um, and and what they're relying upon there is the in, uh, negative inference fallacy that because he he died for the church, therefore he did not die for everyone, um, and the negative inference fallacy, if it was um, you know. Uh, you know, imp, uh, you know, uh, illustrated. You know, we also see in Galatians, Paul said Christ died for me. Uh, if you're using the negative inference fallacy in a, an extreme way, you could say, oh, so that means Christ only died for Paul. Well, no, of course not. He, the fact that he says he died for me just shows that he died for Paul along with the, the world, as 1 John 2.2 2 says, that he is a propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. And so this is talking about the extent of the atonement, meaning that the atonement is provided for the sins of the entire world, just like the serpent, as uh, Jesus refers to in John chapter 3, that was lifted in the desert to bring healing for the people of Israel who were being bitten by the, the snakes. Um, so too, Christ is lifted up for the sins of the entire world, that whosoever looks to him in faith will be healed. So that's a propitiation or a an atonement, uh, a, a means of healing made for the entire world so that all may look to him and be saved. I have a background in photography and cinematography, and then I used to create storyboards on a wall. I mean, this is back a long time ago. St. Paul would help me and Barnabas because it was long ago. <laughs> but we would put them on the wall in pictures. Well, the pictures give you the overview, but the problem is it doesn't give you a flow the way we'd like it. You have to put the flow together later. When people go to the scriptures and they take a particular scripture verse or they create a denominational attitude, they're usually basing it off of only one or two scriptures, and they're making that paramount where we need to be able to collect all of those that talk about the atonement in whatever way, literally hold them all together at the same time or put them on the wall literally and look at all of them without negating any of them. 
because that gives us a fuller picture and a better understanding. And that's why there should be no division in Christianity, but there is, because I don't think most of us, including myself, have always been good Bible students. You know, in Isaiah 53, to, to expand on what Leighton was saying, he, God says that he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Romans says that he brings life to all men. He gave himself as a ransom for all men, First Timothy says. Uh, Christ died for the sins once for all, First Peter 3. Now, some will say, well, those those words all or the world that's the just the elect or it's a limited group of people but uh, Leighton, you mentioned first john 2 2 you can't do that with first john 2 2 because it actually describes both groups of people he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins the believer's sins the elect sins and not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world so there is a clear delineation of both the elect and the non-elect, the saved and the lost, and it's clear that he died for both groups of people. Therefore, Christ's atoning work on the cross is not limited in any way, but universal to all men. Nice discussion, gentlemen. Any other last comments before I move on? All right. Going once. What's for dinner? Going twice. <laughs> All right, I'll move on. Another question. In the book of Revelation, there are letters written to seven churches, and they all, they all begin with, to the angel of the church of, and then fill in the blank, do all the churches in Revelation have the same angel? Are they good angels or fallen angels? And what was their purpose, and are there angels assigned to every church today? Wow, we don't actually know the answer to that question. I think the angels that are described in the seven letters to the seven churches are good angels. Um, I don't think they're fallen angels. We 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 see in, in in Jude that the fallen angels since the time of the flood appear to be locked up in gloomy dungeons awaiting their judgment day. So I don't think they are fallen angels, though they're good angels. The second part of that question was whether or not angels, uh, or does each church have an angel? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know that Scripture actually describes that. It does say that behind every idol there is a demon. Now, a demon is different than a fallen angel, I believe. And so behind behind every church, is there an angel? This kind of gets into the idea of, is there guardian angels over us individually, over churches or whatever? And we just don't have a ton there. But I find it interesting, one of the passages that I always – it just amazes me that Paul says, some of you have entertained angels and not known it. And that's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That some of us may have actually met an angel and not known it. Um, look, our battle is a spiritual battle. We we deal with powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. And I think God has purposely given us just a little glimpse into that world. So maybe we just don't focus on it, but we focus on him who is the commander of all of the armies of heaven. Absolutely. The focus needs to remain literally on Jesus himself, God the Son, because when we fail to look to Jesus, we can get caught up in all, caught up in all kind of other things. And I agree with uh, what Jeff is saying, because in Revelation or anywhere else in the Bible, it doesn't give us a definitive definition. And until we have that, it's very hard to speculate what that means. Now, do I believe there was an angel that was written to in this context? Yep. But whether that applies to us or not, I have no idea. 
All right, we'll be right back with more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what your question is, 877-933-2484. My power panel is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and Dr. Layton Flowers. You can learn more about Layton at his website, soteriology101.com. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us today. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and we've got a special guest. Dr. Leighton Flowers is joining us today, and Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my power panel. So, gentlemen, I just got a follow-up question. Regarding the last comments on the atonement discussion, doesn't this perhaps usher in the idea of universalism? Well, I'll field that. I get that question quite regularly because the the argument goes, if Christ died for everyone, then everybody's sin must be atoned for or paid for, and then therefore no one would have any sins to pay for in hell. Um, It'd be double jeopardy. You'd be paying for the sins that had already been paid for on the cross. And this is what is referred to uh, as a commercialized view of the atonement, and it's not a, a biblical view of the atonement. Uh, that's why I referred to the serpent lifted in the, the desert or even the blood uh, wiped on the doorpost. These are provisional uh, means of atonement. In other words, provided you look to the serpent, you will be healed. Provided you rub the, the blood on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over. And so it's a provision of atonement. Uh, and therefore, the extent is offered to all universally, just like the serpent was lifted on the pole for the whole nation, but it only was applied to those who look to the provision in faith. And so this is uh, – people are conflating uh, the concept of the extent of the atonement with the application of the atonement. The extent of the atonement is universal, but the application is uh, particular or uh, the application is only for those who look uh, to the, the means of healing. Um, and so that some people get that confused and and they just assume that because Christ died for all, that that must mean that everyone would be saved. And that's just that's just not the case. You know, there's a couple other pictures in Scripture um, besides the one that Leighton mentioned in Revelation. It says Jesus stands at the door and knocks and whosoever opens the door, a picture of faith, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. At the woman uh, at the well, Jesus said, if you knew who you're talking to, you would ask me. For living water. This is the the appropriation or the application that Leighton was talking about. That yeah, God opened has opened the door to salvation, uh, but we need to walk through it. We need to believe in order to be saved. People perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. So the 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 greatest sin, if you will, the only sin that keeps people out of heaven is unbelief the lack of faith. People perish because they don't believe the truth. They don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Well, that's yeah, the, no. Go ahead, Leighton. 
I'm, I'm sorry. That's one of the, the, the bad things about not being in the studio. I can't see who's uh, about to start talking here, but <laughs> uh, I'm also, I'm reminded of, of second, uh, second Peter two, one, um, where it talks about false prophets who rose among the people. And just as there will also be false uh, teachers among you, he says, who were, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, mm-hmm. bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So this is an example of those who are destroyed as false teachers. Um, who are secretly in, uh, introducing destructive heresies. So these are people, obviously, Peter is denouncing as as heretics and as unbelievers. But they were. But notice it says they're denying the master who bought them, and so their atonement was provided for them, and yet they're denying that atonement. They're not looking to the the means of healing so as to be healed. If you went into every church or every school that teaches Christianity or Bible school, and there was a throne up front. And you had the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, in most places, Jesus is now being replaced with love. And that seems to become the highest goal for people. And I think that's where a lot of this universalism comes from, that we just love one another. And I grew up with a generation of the John Lennons and others. They know all you need is love. It's not enough because human love doesn't accomplish the atonement. It's only in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, quite honestly, is offensive. People would rather not have to bow down to Jesus. And that's why I always say in a crowd, you can go in a crowd and you could talk about God till you're blue in the face. You bring up the name of Jesus, you'll get some opposition pretty quick. There's a really cool earthly story that symbolizes this. And if I can, really quickly, it's a story of George Wilson. He and his friend robbed a mail truck, killed a man in the process, were arrested, tried, and found guilty of capital murder. Only George Wilson had a friend who knew the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, who pardoned him. But George Wilson refused the pardon. And our government didn't know what to do with him. What do you do Hmm. with a man who refuses the pardon? Well, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. And the decision that was handed down by Chief Justice Marshall basically said a pardon is an act that alleviates the penalty for the crime that has committed. But we know no force, it must be delivered, but it must also be received. And the court said, we know of no power to force a man to receive a pardon. You know what happened to George Wilson? He was hanged. But now the question is, why? Was he hanged because he killed the man? Or was he hanged because he refused the pardon? Second mm-hmm. Thessalonians 2.10. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. Well said. Yep, I like that. Nice. Here's an, another comment for what it's worth. The transliterated uh, word angel means messenger. I believe the angels of the church in Revelations are humans, and they visited John and took back letters. That was a comment that was made. Well, angelos can mean angels. It can mean angels. It can mean messengers. It can be used that way. Um, again, it may be that. I don't know. Uh, but again, and according to Leighton, and I agree with you, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, hey, fellas, uh, thanks for the conversation. The Sermon on the Mount is directed to a large group of people. So is those who are evil in Matthew seven eleven addressing the unbelievers in attendance? Seven <laughs> Eleven. can we read it here real quick matthew seven eleven. yes yep is directed to a large group of people so is those who are evil in matthew seven eleven 
Are they addressing the unbelievers in attendance? I'm looking it up myself. Yeah. How about if I read that? If <laughs> you ahead. then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good give good gifts? I can't talk. Give good gifts to those who ask Him. It's interesting. Hmm. I'm not sure uh, I understand uh, the question. Yeah, I'm not sure I either. I'm, I, I'm not sure I understand it either. Uh, of course, there is a group of people. There could have been obviously believers and unbelievers. So if you're outside of a relationship with God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the English evil. There's a couple words in the Greek for evil, and this is one of them. I actually i am not familiar with this Greek word. It's a little different. It can mean um, full of labors, annoyances, hardships, hard-pressed, bad, bad nature, or bad condition. So I would say, yes, it probably is unbelievers. I guess as I read it, I've always assumed that this is referring to the men who are outside of the fellowship or family mm-hmm. of, of God. And even though you're not saved, you know how to do good things. Just think how much more a righteous father in heaven can give good gifts. If you, being lost and unregenerate, if you will, and by the way, everybody listening at the time was unregenerate because the Holy Spirit has not been had been sent yet, uh, and if even you know how to give good gifts, what do you think God gives? And of course, it's the greatest gift of all, and that's salvation, eternal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another question. Uh, I've I fully understand repenting and receiving God's forgiveness. However, I really struggle with forgiving myself. What verses can you point me to correct this mindset? Well, I like to go one uh, about forgiveness. I'm pulling it up right now. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Yeah. Paul is describing to the Corinthians uh, a long list of, of sins, um, immorality, adultery, uh, idolaters, um, thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusers, swindlers. And he says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm assuming that almost everybody listening could find themselves in that list somewhere. And 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 it's kind of an ominous warning. If, if this is you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and I've heard this preached, and unfortunately, pastors will stop right there and not go on to the next verse, which says this, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been cleansed of all sin, past, present, mm-hmm. and future, when you believe in Jesus Christ. You have been washed. You've been made holy and blameless, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb that Tom was talking about earlier. Um, so the reality is, is that if God has forgiven you, well, then I think you should be able to forgive yourself. I hear well, that. And I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry ahead, about that. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm. I think of Matthew, you know, twenty-two, thirty-nine. You know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in verse thirty-nine, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and I think of what Paul taught, what love truly is. It keeps no records of wrong. And therefore, if, if you're truly loving yourself, which you need to be able to, to love yourself in order to have a, a, a good relationship with others, to love others, um, what greater love uh, can you show for others than to show forgiveness? Um, and, and that includes yourself. You have to be willing to forgive yourself in order to sh- truly show love and forgiveness to others as well. 
As a pastor who's done a lot of counseling, I hear this one probably more than anything else uh, out of people. I know, I can't forgive myself, or how can I forgive myself? And a lot of it comes back to the fact, I think this is where the enemy out there, uh, you know, Satan himself, wants to keep whispering in our ear, we're not worthy. we, We really shouldn't be forgiven. We've gone too far. And yet Jesus emphasizes that he even died for his enemies. And we were all in that category at one time. He is forgiven. And so the way I've had to learn to do this and what I try to teach people is this, is that is your perception of yourself more accurate than Jesus' perception of yourself? Hmm. And he says, you stand forgiven. And no matter what you hear in your head, no matter what voices you hear, no matter what you think about yourself, those are incomplete. The real answer is in what Jesus has declared, and that's what you cling to. And I know it's not yes. easy, but you've got to keep going back to that over and over. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yep. Romans 8.1. Mm-hmm. All right. First. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. And the question is, is it possible for someone who rejected this truth to get back again? And how do you know if you've rejected it? Hmm. To get, meaning, re- repeat that one more time, Bill. Yeah. Um, Not the whole thing, just the last part? Yeah. If the, if they were saved and lost and come back, is that? do you think that's what the question is? I think it is. Is it possible for someone who's rejected this truth to get it back again? And um, I, Yeah, so I, I don't think the person is asking if was the person saved and then lost and then saved again. I'm a firm believer in the assurance of salvation. Scripture declares oh. in multiple places that we can know that we are saved. Uh, our salvation is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power. Now, people can hear the message multiple times and reject it, and then at, finally it, it clicks, and they, they come to their senses, as the prodigal son says, and they finally believe and are saved. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I also think that God is a God of second and third and fourth chances. So, yes, you can hear it over yeah. and over, reject it, and then be saved. Amen. Let me take a little break. You're listening to Guy Talk or the guys who talk, and they're doing a great job. Pastor Tom Paris, Jeff Verdorn, and our special guest today, Dr. Layton Flowers. Thank you for the great questions that are coming in. They're coming in fast and furious, so we're going to be limited as to what we can address when we come back. But um, we try to save them for next time. So uh, if you have a question, send it over 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. If you just climbed in your car or just tuned in or enjoying an hour of Guy Talk, today my power panel is Jeff Verdorn, 
Pastor Tom Parrish and special guest Dr. Leighton Flowers joins us today. Gentlemen, here's the next question. Up, how would you explain predestination to a new believer? Well, I'll field that one because okay. that, it tends to be somewhat in my my field of study uh, with soteriology, especially. Um, and, and one of the easiest ways I've done this, even with young adults, uh, teenagers and others, is to imagine, you know, in the middle of your city, God put a fortress. And he said, uh, anyone who gets into that fortress will surely live because there's a coming storm. But anyone who stays outside that fortress will surely perish. It has been, in fact, destined beforehand that whoever's in that uh, fortress will live and whoever's outside that fortress will perish. And the, the storm comes and sure enough, everyone inside the fortress lives and everyone outside the fortress dies. And so you could truly say that it was predestined that everyone inside that fortress live and everyone outside that fortress die. But notice nothing is said there about who gets into the fortress and who doesn't. Uh, it, it's not that God predestined certain people to choose to get into the fortress and predestined everyone else to stay outside the fortress. It's simply talking about what God has destined beforehand for those who are in Christ, who is our fortress. And so that's your responsibility. Your responsibility is to get into the fortress because just as the first Passover, uh, the death angel is coming, wrath is coming, judgment is coming. But if you're in Christ, God is destined beforehand that you will be saved. And if you remain outside of Christ, if you refuse the truth, uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, they who perish, perish because they refuse the truth so as to be saved. So if you refuse to get under uh, Christ under the fortress, you will surely perish because that's what God has destined beforehand. Nicely done. You know, it's, it's amazing that this word causes such consternation in the church, if you will. It only appears twice in all of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And, and Leighton, that, that explanation of the fortress was a beautiful explanation of, mm -hmm. especially Ephesians one use of that, where it says we've been predestined according to the plan um, the only other place that it comes up is in Romans 8, and I would argue that the, that Romans 8 is describing that believers are predestined to glorification. It does Correct. not say that some mm -hmm. are predestined to salvation, but that believers are predestined to glorification. He's promised our glorification. It will happen, just like those inside the fortress will be saved. God has proclaimed it, and it will happen, and therefore you can say it's predestined. Well said. Amen. All right. I will move on. Here's another question. What is a fallen angel versus a demon? And where did the demons come from? I think we started that conversation a little bit earlier in the hour, and this is a follow-up question to that. And so the question is, what is a fallen angel versus a demon? Which I have no idea. Well, maybe I'll start because I kind of started that up. I opened that can of worms, if you will. Um, I believe that scripture in, in both for fallen angels, that at the time of the flood, it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and had relations with them. Now, this is, this is probably too long for the segment that we have, but if they had children, and they were these Nephilim as described in scripture, and then the Nephilim died, you would have a uh, disembodied spirit that is a candidate to become the demons that we see today. Really in scripture, you only have two candidates, and that's for, de for demons, that either they're fallen angels or they're disembodied Nephilim from the time of the flood, all right? Now, most 
of Christians think it's fallen angels. However, uh, the New Testament indicates that fallen angels are being held in gloomy dungeons. So I think that rules them out as candidates to be these demons. The other piece of this is that we know that angels were made good and then fell. There's no account of God making good demons and then having them fall. And we also, I think, can safely assume that God didn't make evil demonic creatures. All that he made is good. So the two primary views of where demons come from are disembodied Nephilim or fallen angels. I think fallen angels are precluded because they're being held in dungeons. So there's about as short as I can try to get through that understanding. I've, in my ministry, I've run into the demonic in people. And uh, I've heard voices come out of people that I could not imitate, and I've got a baritone voice, uh, out of women, deeper than my voice. And they are always, always, always upset with the name of Jesus. Um, I don't know where they come from, but I know they're in opposition to the Lord Jesus. They're in opposition to the gospel. And for every Christian, as you run into that, or if you're at home at night and you start hearing voices in your head that tell you you're worthless, Jesus really doesn't love you and all this, use the name of Jesus and claim him as your Lord and Savior covered by his blood because the demons hate that and there is power. And yet in Christianity, we either go to one extreme on that and talk about it all the time, or we don't talk about it at all. I want to be more in the middle and just honor it for what the scriptures mm. actually say. Mm. Well said. All right. Yeah, so, let's not end on demons, by the way. No, I today. agree. I agree. There's <laughs> uh, another question. Why are there so many different denominations and so many different beliefs with only one God? I would say free will. Yeah, we have free will, and we have uh, different um, backgrounds, uh, ideas, presuppositions, oftentimes that we, we bring to the text. Um, that isn't to say all of us are right. Um, obviously, there are some mutually exclusive claims among the different denominations, and and I think uh, some are in error. Uh, I, I, I am not so naive as to think I don't hold to at least one errant doctrine along the way or have some mistakes I've made along the way. But that's why we, we trust in the grace of God, as was mentioned earlier. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and God's grace covers um, some of the errors that we make, especially with uh, open-handed issues. Um, and unfortunately, in, in my estimation, churches oftentimes split over uh, open-handed and smaller matters, even as small as the color of carpets or something of that nature. And and I don't think that pleases the Lord whenever his, his people are uh, not in unity and walking in unity with each other. I have four children, and they're grown now, and one of the greatest delights I have is watching them love each other and seeing them get along so well with each other. Um, that, and I, I can only imagine that's a fraction of the joy that our father feels in heaven when he sees his people get along, getting along despite the fact that they don't always agree with each other about every single thing. Mm. I've got one more question I'd like to uh, put into the mix here. And Leighton, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to respond to this one. Uh, the comment that came in is, are we saying then that individuals are not predestined. How does it fit with our being chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, or is that not individually either? Well, it says that, 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 that the us there, the us in him is who are chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, who is us in him? Well, if you look back up at verse 1, he's speaking to the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
So us in him is speaking about the faithful in Christ have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. This has been God's choice from the very beginning, that those in Christ will be made holy and blameless, will be conformed into the image of his son, will be sanctified, will be glorified. So he is destined beforehand what will happen to us who are in him. Well, I'm not born in him. Uh, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2 that we were all children of wrath under uh, Adam. We were not in Christ when we were born. We only come to be in Christ, according to verse 13 of that same chapter, when we hear the message of truth and believe, then we're marked in him. And so it's those in him who are chosen to become holy and blameless. And this is a choice God made from the very beginning of time. So uh, long ago, and this is Paul's emphasis here, is that he's he's really confronting the Jew-Gentile issue by saying, uh, you know, hey, Jewish people, re- realize the Gentiles from the very beginning have been chosen for this glory. Uh, this is the mystery that he, he speaks of in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The mystery that's just now being made known and being revealed is that God has always had this plan to bring in the Gentiles, and uh, he is destined beforehand for all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. This has been God's plan from the beginning to sanctify, glorify, uh, and save, ultimately save all who believe in him. Yeah, and it, it, the the distinction between God knowing and God causing, God can know what's going to happen. He can know the future, and your names can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. He knows who will believe and be saved according to his plan that Leighton just described. That doesn't mean that he causes those people to believe and be saved. So there's a distinction between God knowing and God causing. Appreciate the answers, and I appreciate the uh, all the hard work you guys did this hour. I didn't work as hard as you guys did. <laughs> I mean, I thought about it, but it just didn't turn out that I worked that hard. You guys definitely did the heavy lifting today. And Leighton, it's been a delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for Indeed. saying yes to my invitation. Glad you were here. Ah, glad to be here. It's my honor. Thank you so much. Um, that is it for Guide Talk. So thank you for all the great questions. It was really a fast hour. I wish we had more time. Uh, but we will uh, resume again next week, same time. And we're going to take a break. And we come back, my guest is Jody Goldie. And we're going to discuss uh, trauma because she's a, a trauma counselor and she's excellent. So we'll be right back with lots more. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.